We'll be saying this many, many times, but it's, it's wonderful to welcome you back into, um, to welcome the first timers and also those who've, who've been here many times back to our Beit Midrash. Um, our Beit Midrash is a place um, which is complete when you're here, when it is a place which both produces ideas, but it's a place which also teaches those ideas and shares them with the Jewish people. And that you have a Beit Midrash in Jerusalem is a very, very beautiful idea. That you come to Jerusalem. Um, a lot of people come to Jerusalem for many, many things. And there's a lot of good reasons to come here. Um, but that you come here um, to think about your Jewish life, to think about what it means to be a Jew, to think about the issues and challenges that we face um, is a very, very, very beautiful thing. And I feel very honored to share my home, our home, and this Beit Midrash with you. There is absolutely nothing that Israel could do to bring peace to the Middle East. Regardless of what we do, either the Palestinian Authority or the Palestinian people or the neighborhood have not fully accepted that we have come home. And they reject completely all attempts and calls that we have made to make peace. If Israel would have the courage to simply stop building settlements and to respond to the sometimes weak voices that are out there, peace would be possible. The last thing that Israel should do is to stop building settlements. For the only thing that will possibly bring peace is if the Palestinians know that the more time passes, the status quo doesn't play into their hands. As long as Israel declares that it wants peace and that it ultimately accepts the two-state solution, to continue settlement expansion is both a slap in the face of the Palestinians and a constant reminder to them and evidence to them that we're not serious about peace. Any unilateral moves that Israel makes towards the Palestinians will always be interpreted as weakness. 
and it is forbidden for us to repeat the mistake of Gaza in Judea and Samaria. Haven't you gotten the message? It is Israel's requirement as a strong country to make the first step. And if we take that first step, and if we make some unilateral moves, it's possible that it will change the whole atmosphere in the Palestinian Authority. The Middle East is an unbelievably dangerous place. And if you want to live in the Middle East, you have to understand that you're not in North America. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is no longer an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And whoever we negotiate with now, and even if they sign a treaty, will probably not be there in a few months. And all you have to do is look at the Middle East, from Syria to Iraq, to Egypt, to Lebanon, to know that the problem is so much bigger than settlements. And the problem is so much bigger than are you going to hold on to a little piece of land in the Jordan River. This is fundamentally a dangerous place, and anybody who believes that there is anything that we could do to create the type of security that we need through negotiations is living a false dream. The Palestinian Authority is clearly distinguishing itself from its neighbors. It will be a self-fulfilling prophecy if we treat Judea and Samaria or the West Bank as Iraq. The only way to prevent the West Bank from becoming Iraq is if we find those partners who are there and strengthen them, and we take responsibility for shaping the neighborhood we want instead of accepting a notion of a neighborhood that we have inherited. I think I've more or less covered <laughs> most arguments. I've said it. Now take every one of these arguments and put them in your bags and put them away because we're not going to talk about them for the next week. Every one of these positions is intellectually sound. Every one of these positions is morally sound. And within the Hartman Beit Midrash, we are not going to debate any of these positions. We are not going to talk about which opinion is better and which opinion is worse. Who is getting it right and who is stupid.
I'm going to ask you to do something that's very, very hard for our community right now. Leave your politics outside the gate. They don't interest anybody in this room. Not only do they not interest us, we have to realize that we are now suffering from a serious malaise. We don't know how to talk politics with each other. We don't. And all of our pluralism and tolerance, which we have about so many issues, psychologically, we don't know how to use them. We don't know how to express them on these issues. And as a result, when we start to talk, we very quickly start to talk at, we begin to lecture, we begin to argue, and the one thing we very rarely do is listen. And even if we listen, it's one of those listenings, I wish they would finish already. It's like, like I want to show you my granddaughter's pictures, but frankly, I don't want to see anybody else's. <laughs> and we know that's true. Well, political arguments are exactly the same. You have the pictures that you want to show and you have the truths that if I just told it to you one more time, you're going to see the light because it's so self-evident. What you don't see? Leave it alone. Have that campaign somewhere else. But we are going to be dancing with fire for this week because we're talking about politics. Because politics is, you, is a Jewish values issue. It's part of life. But I want to tell you the space that we want you to occupy. Regardless of whether or what you think is possible, what is it that you want? Stop for a moment thinking about what's possible. Stop for a moment thinking about what's realistic. What do you want? What are the values that infuse your thought processes? How do we think about these issues? Can there be a shared values conversation amongst us even if we fundamentally disagree as to whether these values could be expressed? I have a lot of political positions. I have a lot of certainties, but inherent within my certainties is the knowledge that there's no way that I am definitively correct. I have my opinions. Most of them are leaps of faith. And I know how much those leaps of faiths are. You weigh facts and facts and you make a decision and very often you make your decision on the basis of so many different ideas and principles and considerations. Sometimes it's certain, it's, it's certain moral values that you value more. Sometimes it's certain political nuances that you have greater affinity to. Sometimes it's certain issues that if, you, that if you have to err, you choose to err in some way. Sometimes it's your political, it's your own personal path. There's so many reasons why we disagree politically. 
And our job is not to, ha not to create a format for some collective therapy which just won't work. But could we talk again about Israel, about war and peace? Could we talk about what it is that's important to us? Could we talk about not only what's important to us, but the work that we have to do, regardless of whether if we do it, it will in fact have any impact on our surroundings. Might have no impact whatsoever. I am in a certain sense asking you to fulfill one of the strangest and hardest of Jewish commandments. And that is to walk in God's ways. We are obligated in our tradition, v'halachta bidrachav, to walk in God's ways. And God is the paradigm of that being which sets forth their aspirations while knowing that the gap between their aspirations and the ability for those aspirations to be implemented in reality is both huge and completely out of God's hands. God takes the Jewish people out of Egypt and says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying, this is what I want. This is the type of people I want to walk with. This is the world that I, this is the way I want to look at you. This is what I want to work on. And I'm going to give a Torah, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to try to see whether it's possible, but I know fully well that I could huff and puff and do anything I want, and I can't blow, maybe I could blow a house down, but I can't change the heart of the Jewish people. It's not in my hands. And even though the Jewish people over and over and over again disappoint God, reject God, turn their backs to God, are an obnoxious, obnoxious, stiff-necked, yucky people. One of the most disgusting, it's like the Bible is an anti-Semitic book. It's worse than the protocols of Zion. When it talks, it's like, that's the way you're talking about me? The whole book of numbers, get it out of there. Get it out of there. I don't want such a reality check. Look what it says about us. We're disgusting. But who we are never changes in one iota what God says we ought to be. That's the place that I as a Jew want to inhabit. The deepest meaning of returning to Israel is that my obligation is to hold two tensions at the same time. My first tension is that I have to recognize that I am in the Middle East. The Zionist revolution is not a revolution of naivete, but a revolution which fully embraces the reality of life. To be a Zionist is to look at the world, learn from it, be bodied by it, connect to it, attempt to influence it. And as a result, every one of us has to have an opinion as, how, as to what is the best way to do that. To be a Zionist is not to be naive. It's to ask what is it that is possible. And that domain, we disagree on. Great. 
But the second dimension of being a Zionist, if the first one is to recognize that we are in the Middle East, the second one is to not let ourselves be defined by the Middle East. And that's the paradox of Zionism. On the one hand, if you forget for one second that you're in the Middle East, it's an anti-Zionist move. Zionism is about the Jewish people saying, get real. Now, what does it mean to get real? We disagree. But your argument has to be grounded in, in, a, in a take on what it means to get real. But despite the fact that you are forbidden to forget that you're in the Middle East, our obligation is never to be a Middle Eastern phenomena. Ever. Because the minute we are a Middle Eastern phenomena, then we aren't who we are. Then we're not a homeland of Jewish people. And so this institute is not a political institute in the sense that we either have a position or that you have come here to more finely attune yourselves to various truths regarding the reality of the Middle East. There might be some lectures in the evenings where people are presenting their own personal positions. And the goal sometimes is not for you to agree or to disagree. And it's not, our goal is not to put every opinion in front of you so that it's so-called a balance. That I, 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 I try, but it's like I'm not, I'm not sitting there with a weight, a scale all the time. If a lecture says something, and that the consequence of that lecture is that you could think about something in a more intelligent way, that's not just Dayenu, that's the Messianic era. So you heard somebody you disagreed with. Oh, I'm plotsing. Oh my God, he said something. Like, you know, nobody here is changing your political positions anyway, so it's not like, oh my God. If like I, no one changes their politics. It's just if it makes you think, great, so you thought. And sometimes you think best when you hear somebody who you disagree with. Did they do it intelligently? Was it thoughtful? Did it lack ad hominem attacks? Was it a serious conversation? Great. But in the mornings, in the afternoons, in our Torah study sessions, our goal is very clear. Who do we want to be? What are the values that we want to bring to the table, even if we disagree as to whether those values or how those values could be best implemented. And I actually believe that the Jewish people are far closer than they know they are. And that one of the reasons why we are so far is that we very often demonize the other position. And instead of seeing a position as a different expression of a core value, it's far more convenient for us to deny the value and thought and intelligence of the other. And this way, I don't have to think, it that, think about it that much. One of the re other reasons for us feeling that we are much further apart is that we've stopped talking in this manner. We talk politics all the time. And we don't talk enough Judaism. I have very mixed feelings about what's possible, and my opinions change. But I have personally been engaging, together with my team and a lot of the staff in the Institute, in a very deep learning experience. 
which I want to share with you and which our staff are going to share with you. Let's talk about who we want to be. This is an institute where if somebody says that's naive, our response is thank you. Because that's what Jews are. We believe that ideas matter. We believe that values matter. And we believe that as Jews, we should talk about them. That's what we believe. That's our job. That's Torah. That's Torah. And just like the ideas of Torah might reflect themselves in different denominations and different shuls, and going to shul or not going to shul, different values and different reading of Torah could lead to different perceptions of what ought to be done or not and which political party you feel closer to. And in particular, what I ask myself, and with that I'd like to begin, is what work do we need to do? What is it that we care about? We are a people who prays about peace. We pray about peace all the time. When our Kohanim come to bless us, they bless us with peace. When we end our key prayers, the Shmona Esrei, the core facet of what constitutes Jewish prayer. It's a prayer for peace, and it's a description of God as the God who brings peace. Every time we say Kaddish, we end with, shalom bimromav, huya shalom, aleinu val kol Yisrael You God who makes peace on high, May you please bring peace on us and on your children of Israel and let us all say amen. It's you can't open up a Jewish prayer book without recognizing that that which we ask most for is peace. But I want to ask you tonight, what do we mean when we say peace? What does peace mean? What are we praying for? What is it that we've inherited from our tradition? What is the language of peace that is so central to our tradition? It's actually a little more complicated story. And I'd like us to look at four different dimensions of peace in the Jewish tradition, all of which are part of the whether we knew it or not, it's part of, an, of our inheritance. It's part of what we heard. And it's not a simple or easy story. The first is utopian peace, one of the most dominant forms of peace in the prophetic literature. On page two and three, I gave you different expressions of it, and we'll just look at two. But a shoot shall, show out, shall, shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. A twig shall sprout from his stalk. The spirit of the Lord shall alight upon him. 
a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of devotion and reverence for the Lord. He shall sense the truth by his reverence for the Lord. He shall not, not judge by, his, by what his eyes behold nor decide by what his ears perceive. Thus he shall judge the poor with equity and decide with justice for the lowly of the land. He shall strike down with a land down a land with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Justice shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his waist. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the kid, the calf, the beast of prey and the fatling together with the young boy to herd them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion like the ox shall eat stray, straw and a babe shall play over a viper's hole, and an infant pass his hand over an adder's den. In all of my sacred mount, nothing evil or vile shall be done, for the land shall be filled with devotion to the Lord as water covers the sea. It's beautiful. I dream for this. I want it so much I could almost taste it. But for this to happen, this is not a peace that I could bring. This is a peace that requires a complete and total transformation in the laws of nature. For lions to lie down with lambs, I can negotiate from now to kingdoms come. This is a peace that God has to bring to the land. This is a transformation of history. A complete overturning of the laws of nature. Now when this is the peace that you yearn for, it creates a profound aspiration, but also complete and total passivity. Because peace is not something that you could even bring or could even think about. God is the God of peace. God is the God who brings peace. You, your job is to say, That is what's called activism for the sake of utopian peace. To pray for peace is all you can do. Now what happens to a people for whom one of the fundamental features of their aspiration is utopia? Utopianism is phenomenal because it enables you to withstand the dread and the, and the, the depressing nature of reality. Utopianism enables you to sometimes have an inner strength to break through what seems like an impenetrable reality. If you really believe, the believer could look reality in the eyes and say, I will defeat you. Utopianism is very powerful. But utopianism could also create a strength of will and belief which a person never believes needs to be translated into anything that they could do or that anything that they need to do 
somebody else's problem. Do we or are we committed to utopian peace? And if so, when we come back to the Middle East, regardless of your political position, you know for sure that this peace is not in your hands. And even if you take the other version of it in Isaiah chapter 2, in the word of Isaiah, son of Amot's prophesying concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days to come, the mount of the Lord's house shall gaze firm upon the mountains and tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy, and many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that it may instruct us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for instruction shall come forth for Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge amongst the nations and arbitrate from the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation, nor shall they never, they shall never again know war. That's not a transformation in nature. Lions aren't living with lambs, and children aren't, vipers aren't anymore children toys. This is still a real world, but swords are turned into plowshares. There's another more subtle utopianism. Not a utopianism that only God could bring. That's completely passive. Activism is to shuckle. Shuckle harder. You know what shuckle is? That's the swaying during prayer. That's, you know, Jewish activism, which the Zionists were, were nauseated by, was shuckling. You know, like, I'm doing something. <laughs> sure, I'm doing. I'm doing it. You know, that's like, I'm doing it, you know. Like, and sometimes there's contortions in the faces. That's even, I'm doing everything I can. What more could you ask me to do? There's nothing more that I could ask you to do for Isaiah 11. Isaiah 2, that you can do. Because it is a real world, the world that we know. But here the utopianism is, it's not a ceasefire. And it's not mutual acceptance. It's a human decision to embrace a higher standard of truth and justice which God will finally shake into us so that we will recognize. It's when human beings will transcend their fundamental mediocrity and accept that war is not politics by another means, to quote, to quote Clausewitz. War is not the way human beings do politics. You don't need your swords anymore. Now that, I could taste even more. I could taste it even more. It's like I have, I've had a gun um, since 1977. Um, and uh, for the first 20 years or so, um, there was a big balagan in Israel. Like if you had a gun, no one checked if you had a license. It's like it was just sort of, you know, you once got a license, they sent you a license in the mail. A renew they renewed your license. Now it became a much more, um, uh, so you, you, you have to come up, you have to go to the, you, you have to fill out these forms and you have to go, um, 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 go to the shooting range to make sure and doctors and stuff, the whole thing just to make sure that you're, and you have to make sure that you're competent every few, and like, 
Next Monday I, morning, I have to go to the range um, to uh, um, re-whatever, re-something, re-qualify. And, like, and I'm sitting there and wondering, because like, the only reason why I keep it now is, like, what happens if something really bad happens? Like, I want to know that in my surroundings, I could take care of myself. Like, I want to know. I want to know that I have access to something. I don't walk around with it. Um, but I know that if something really bad happens, I want to know that I could help my family, that I could do what I need to do. And I'm, and I'm sitting here, like, wondering, like, I'm already 55. Like, it's like I'm not, you know, I have no cowboy Rambo fantasies. Those were gone a long time ago. Um, no, that's like, it's not even, it's just like, and I'm saying, you know, Danielle, could you give it up? And I'm saying, I'm thinking, because like I remember when I moved into my house, it's like, because now the rules are so strict, because you have to have your gun locked in a double lock, plus you have to keep the bullets in another place locked. The amount of time it takes you. <laughs> I moved into my house, and there's this thing that um, whenever you move in, very often there's robberies. So we move in, and... Uh, um, we go to sleep and we hear this loud noise downstairs. Oh my God, they're coming to rob the house. Jump up, I go, I get my gun. And I, since I watched movies now, I know how to do house to house, room to room. I'm going with my gun and I'm searching for every room. Whew, I come back, the house is safe. Only then did I realize that I left the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> it was like literally, I was like, <laughs> anyway. It's like, my, it's, I, it was, anyway, it's true. Um, so it's not, but like, I'm like, I want to give it up already. But I don't know. I don't know. Peace? For the peace of Isaiah 2? Easy. But what happens if the peace of Isaiah 2, even if I lived in North America, is not a reality? Human beings haven't yet decided that war is not an instrument of politics. If I have this utopianism and I live in the Middle East, do I really yearn for peace even though I pray for it? In one sense, I yearn for it, but in another sense, I know it is so implausible that have I not de facto created a category that I know will never be implemented and consequently I don't really think about it and I have no problem praying about something that I don't think about. That's what we do all the time. Except for in your show. You guys are different. But other than your beautiful shul, most Jews pray things and say, I just prayed it. Didn't mean I meant it. <laughs> Let alone under, that's even assuming that I understood what I said <laughs> or even said anything. You know, it's usually the people up front who are saying the words and I just have to say amen whether I heard them or not. But praying and not, you know, it's like, that's easy. We're like, we, we're like Clintons when it comes, like the parallel of Clinton is to mar marijuana what Jews are to prayer. You know, I smoked but I didn't inhale. You know, it's like, I said it but I didn't mean it. So like, I could say anything about peace but deep down, this peace you know it's not our story. And consequently, you really don't take seriously 
this as a possibility. What happens when a primary definition of your value is something that you know cannot be implemented, your ability to be depressed, to put your value on a bookshelf and make it something theoretical for some messianic era, not something that even if you could work on it, it's just, it's just too far away. Your ability to be depressed, your ability to say, yes, I really want peace. And by the way, I, again, I'm not going to speak, I do believe that the vast majority of Israelis truly, truly want this peace. And that's not a political statement. That is my testimony about the people that I feel that I am walking in their midst. I think they truly, truly want this. I even believe that the vast, vast majority would be willing to do unbelievable compromises. And I would argue even over Jerusalem if this was on the table whether ideologically they make sense of it or not, if this was what's there, this is what we really want for our kids. We really want this. But most Israelis have stopped believing in this reality a long time ago. And I believe one of the consequences of that is that we have stopped a serious engagement with the possibility of peace within our lifetime. It's very, very hard to hold on to a utopian ideal in the face of a reality which clearly shows that it's impossible. And so the first idea that I want you to ingest is that with the centrality of peace within our tradition, do we have a language of peace as a value that is actually something that we have an ability to continue to think about within any notion of the reality within which we live. And one of the consequences of Israeli society since the Second Intifada is that there has been not a shift in people's commitment to peace, but in people's belief in its possibility. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is what is the notion of peace to which we are yearning and aspiring? There is a second category of peace, which in fact is the dominant notion of peace in the Bible. By far the dominant notion of peace. And it is not utopian peace, it's imperial peace. And what does imperial peace mean? When you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer it terms of peace. Beautiful. If you're at war, war is always the second option. If you're going to war, peace is always the default position of the Jew, Deuteronomy says, for a second. And then they go to the next verse. And I wish they would have stopped here. If it responds peacefully and lets you in, all the people present there shall, for, shall serve you at forced labor. Imperial peace is a peace in which I rule. I'm boss. I'm king. 
Now, in biblical terms, and by the way, all religious traditions suffer from this imperial piece. All religious traditions could quote for you all the verses about how peace is so central to my tradition. Of course, it's the same word. Shalom, peace, salam. No one wants peace more than us. Everything is salam. It's God's name and blah, blah. Which peace are you talking about? Is it a peace where I win? It's a peace in which there is no war because I dominate you. Because I, the chosen one of God, I'm able to bring God's forces to bear and you ultimately succumb to me because the natural order of things is that I am victorious. It's the, vic it's the peace of the victorious. And if, by the way, you don't surrender to my imperial peace, not only are you not simply slaves, but then I will join battle with you and you shall lay siege to it. And then the Lord your God, obviously, delivers it into your hand. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand because chosen people, whether you're Jew chosen, Christian chosen, or Muslim chosen, obviously God fights for you, then you shall put all of its males to the sword. But since we are not totally creeps, you may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything in the town, all its spoil. When I read these, this is like, you know, I always, I, this is where the Bible is most biased against men. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, what? it's like, oh, they killed the women and children. Like, well, oh, it's like, it's like I feel like I was born, like, thank God I'm born today, when, like, or in a period when we are so genderly imbalanced the other way. Here, men are being killed all the time. Women, they're just raped and slaved. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you can kill the men. It's like... This is imperial peace. And I want you to know that this is one of the dominant nation, na notions of peace in religious life. And you pray for peace, but what is the peace that you're praying for? And very often, the more committed you are to your tradition, the more it is this type of peace that you yearn for. Instead of this, in a certain sense, it is empirically a very deeply religious peace. It's a peace of the faithful. It's the peace of the chosen. It's the peace of the person who believes that God loves them. And as a result, will bring about a world where they are at peace by subjugating all others. And this, by the way, imperial peace, we're not going to read it. You can learn it on your own. The prophets are not just utopian peace. Now, when you compare the two, the interesting feature of the prophetic peace is that it is not always the peace of, of, of dominance or imperial peace. It's where we all together, Jews don't win in Isaiah or in Micha. It's like we're not necessarily that, that national distinctions. There is there, part of the utopianism is far nicer than imperial peace. Because it's not just us who are winning. We're living at peace, but it's just so far-fetched. What is more realistic? What are we? It's this. Even in the prophets, the prophets aren't just utopian. They also pray for, and the prophets are filled with stories of imperial peace. And this notion of imperial peace is not just way back somewhere but it also gets translated into Jewish law. 
because you know the Bible is not Judaism. You all know the Bible is not Judaism. Judaism is the way the Jewish people read the Bible and translate it into Jewish law and engage with it and take it further. This notion of imperial peace gets priced in the halachic writing of Maimonides. Yes, the Maimonides for who's kept us all Jewish, the Maimonides who's shown that liberalism and open-mindedness and thoughtfulness, like I couldn't be Jewish without Maimonides yet. Like, there's no way I could be Jewish if Maimonides didn't exist. No way. It's only because of Maimonides that there's a Judaism that I could recognize as something that I'd want to be a part of. But that same Maimonides on page six in his Laws of Wars, of, of Kings and Wars, he translates imperial peace into law. It's not, oh, that's what we did back then because we were fighting these idolatrous creeps and now it's very different and it's a different context and you have to contextualize. You have to, if you were there, you would have understood that the only way to do it is all of the above. But Maimonides, our enlightened one, war, neither a, a permissible war nor an obligatory war. Wars should not be waged against anyone until they are offered the opportunity of peace. As Deuteronomy 20.10 states, when you approach a city to wage war against it, you shall propose a peaceful settlement. If the enemy accepts the offer of peace and commits itself to fulfillment of the seven commandments that were commanded to Noah's descendants, none of them shall be killed, rather they shall be subjugated. Maimonides even adds, not only do they have to accept peace, they also have to relinquish idolatry. And if they don't relinquish idolatry, even if they want to live in peace with you, you have to kill all the males. That is part of Jewish law. Not Bible, not a little drush on Shabbos. This is Jewish law. And so the notion of imperial peace, for those who read Maimonides, for those who grow up on Jewish law, becomes a significant factor in shaping your perspective on the world. And if my return to power is my ability to create the world which I yearn for, then you have to be very careful what it is that people are yearning for. Because imperial peace is completely neutral when we're powerless. When we become powerful, it becomes a much more significant issue, shaping our consciousness. And for many Jews, the prayer for peace is a prayer for this. There is a third notion of peace, which it's almost impossible to find. And I and my colleagues worked really, really hard. We looked for it. We found a few of them and we were looking, are there more? Really tough. There is a piece of justice. What is the piece of justice? Source 9 in Deuteronomy. Right beforehand, God is basically says to Moses, you're going into the land of Israel, and God does what's known as a divine game of duck, duck, goose. <laughs> duck, 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 goose. Don't fight, don't fight, don't fight, don't fight, fight. That's basically biblical morality of war. A just war and an unjust war is the war that God tells you to wage. Don't touch them, they're the descendants of Asaph. Don't touch them, they're the descendants of Ishmael. Don't touch them because I promise not to. Them, go after. 
And God says, duck, 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 goose, and decides that the first goose that the Jewish people should pursue is the Amorite, Sichon the Amorite, king of Cheshbon. That's yours. God says, see, up, set across Wadi Arnon, see, I give into your power Sichon Amorite, king of Cheshbon, and his land. Begin the occupation, engage him in battle. Why? This day I begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under heaven, so that they shall tremble and quake because of you whenever they hear you mentioned. It's a really interesting text. You see, Cheshbon was not part of the promised land. God is saying, fight them. Why should you fight them? Because I need to build your reputation. I need people to fear you a little bit. That's what I need. And when people fear you, your ability to win in war is dramatically increased. Dramatically increased. When they tremble before you, their ability to fight against you with courage is diminished. Now, here, I'm giving you an easy victory. Go for it. It's not that we, this is not part of the land of Israel. This is not yours. None of it. Just, I need an easy victory so that everybody will recognize that this slave people is not a slave people anymore and they have now become a warrior, warrior people. Then, I, Moses, sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketemot to King Sichon of Cheshbon with an offer of peace. Moses does something that God doesn't ask him to do. God says to him, go fight. And Moses sends F messengers of peace. Now one second, we already know, I know it's a few chapters later on, but which messenger of peace is Moses? Is this like, you know, I'm offering you peace and subjugation, but either way, Moses isn't listening to God. And look what Moses says. Let me pass through your country. I will keep strictly to the highway turning off neither to the right nor the left. What money I eat, you will supply for, what food I eat, you will supply for money. And what water I drink, you will furnish for money. Just let me pass through. Just as the descendants of Esau who dwell in Seir did for me, those were the ducks, that's before the goose. And the Moabites who dwell in Er, Moses is basically giving the goose the chance to be a duck. God said, duck, 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 goose, and I'm saying, duck, 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 duck. I don't want to fight. I don't have any claim to your land. I'm not making any claim on your land. I have no right to your land. I have no notion that it is my job to dominate you. I don't walk in the world and say anywhere where my foot lands is mine and the rightful order of things is that you are subjugated to me. The rightful order of things, even when God commanded me to do so, is a recognition that you have a right to what's yours. And if I enter into your land, I could only do so if you permit it, and anything I touch, I have to pay for. Because it's not mine. In the peace of justice, the foundation is to recognize that it's not yours. It's theirs. And that when I stand opposite you as a nation, it's similar to the way I stand opposite a fellow citizen or another individual in the world. 
that individuals, nations just like individuals, are embodied or imbued with inalienable rights to their own space, to their own dignity, to their own freedom. And you are not, to quote Kantian ethics, that, that, you're, that I, you are not a means, but an end. And I cannot subjugate or perceive you merely as a tool to serve my interests. You obligate me as an end unto yourself. That's a piece of justice. And Moses implements it. And if the text would have ended here, it would have been great. The fact that it's not discussing the seven Canaanite nations, ah, nicha, as they say, that's an even, that's, but still, at least the notion exists that, that what does it mean to offer peace? To offer peace means to accept the, the autonomy, the legitimacy, the independence, the inalienable rights of the other. That that's what peace means. Seeing the other as separate from you with, 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 with the totality of being. If we have that peace, great. I want to walk in the ways of Moses. But unfortunately, but King Cheshbon refused to let us pass. Why? Because the Lord stiffened his will and hardened his heart in order to deliver him into your power, as is now the case. God says, Moses, knock yourself out. I decide who's a goose. When I say duck, duck, goose, it's duck, duck, goose. And if you think they're a duck, I get to decide. And I have at my measures, I have in my power measures that I shape reality, you live in reality. Moses, don't, nice try. Just don't start up with me. Because what I want here is I want imperial peace. I don't want a peace of justice. What's very interesting, and therefore, this whole idea is standing on a thread. There's a thread. So I could say, you know what, just read the first part and then we'll start singing a song maybe. You know, so I could, I, like, you know you, I can now, today it's much easier. I could cut and paste and create a study kit and you'll, you'll never even know. And for 90% of the people, I can get away with it. <laughs> Got away with it. Oh, I heard a class, the centrality of peace, Moses, ugh. Oh, and I could talk about Moses and it's just great. And I could count on the fact that you are truly committed after Hebrew school never to study a Jewish text again. And therefore, as long as Jews believe that, I'm set. It's like one of the benefits of Hebrew school. One of the true benefits of Hebrew school is that you hate a Jewish text so much, I could just pick and you will never, ever know better. Um, and so maybe, but unfortunately it's there. But the rabbis come to our assistance. And look, at the, the rabbis come and reclaim the notion of the peace of justice. And look at two rabbinic interpretations of Deuteronomy 2. They're remarkable. Israel sent messengers. This bears on what scripture, this is, and, and Israel sent messengers to Sichon, etc. This bears on what scripture says. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cherish faithfulness. It also says, depart from evil and do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Now the Torah did not insist that we should actually go in pursuit of the commandments, but said, if a bird's nest chances to be before thee, if thou meets thy neighbor, thy enemy's ox, if thou sees an ass of him and that hateth, etc., 
when thou beatest the, thine olive tree, when you gather the grapes, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard. But if you never went into the vineyard, if you never were there, you could stay in your house and be a perfect Jew and never sin. You're not obligated to find your neighbor's lost property. If it hits you, then a whole system of obligations gets activated. But if you're just sitting down and watching TV from morning to night, you fulfilled 83% of the commandments. <laughs> it's a good deal. <laughs> but in all these cases, if they come your way and are, you are commanded to perform the duties connected, but you need not go in pursuit of them. In the case of peace, however, seek peace where you happen to be and pursue it if it is even if it is elsewhere. Israel, in fact, acted in this way. Although the Holy One, blessed be he, said to them, begin to possess it and contend with him in battle, they pursued peace. According to this rabbinic ruling, Moses does not rebel against God. Moses is not turning a, a goose into a duck. Moses' imperial peace is secondary to the peace of justice. If you could pursue it and create a peace of justice, you have fulfilled your duties and your obligations. Rabbis turn the biblical text over. Not only that, they even go a step further. So, number one, it's not that I'm rebelling against. It's not that God and Moses are in conflict somehow. No, God says, you were right. I said, go to war. True, but you know that peace is something you have to pursue. And that's why even if I permit war, even if I allow it, even if possibly I command it, you are obligated to pursue it. Another exposition of the text, then Israel, then sang Israel. This is, the one of the, this is one of three things said by Moses to the Holy One, blessed be he, to which the latter replied, you have taught me something. Whenever Moses does something, the, the, the Bible is fundamentally, and God spoke to Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, and then Moses says unto them what God told him to do. And whenever Moses talks, it's like God talking. But here, he said there's three times in the whole Bible that Moses does something different than what God said. And in our text, when Moses does something different, what does God do? God, it's like, he doesn't even argue. It's like swats him away like a fly. The rabbis say, God doesn't swat with a fly. God says, I agree with you. They're rewriting the tradition in one of the most dramatic fashions. The third occasion was when the Holy One, blessed be he, said, make war with Sichon. Even though he does not seek to interfere with you, you must open hostilities against him, as it says, blah, blah, blah. Moses, however, did not do so. But in accordance with what is written lower down, sent messengers of peace. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, by my life, I shall cancel my own words and confirm yours. You think that God disagreed with Moses? In the rabbinic version of this text, the notion of peace of justice becomes a divine commandment. And they say that Deuteronomy 20, which looks like imperial peace, is in fact the peace of justice. They take a text, 
cut and paste it out and say, God now follows the path of Moses. Judaism is not only when God spoke to Moses saying, it's also a tradition in which Moses spoke to God saying. But it's problematic because this, if this is your piece of justice, if this is what you count on, you have to count on somebody reading the biblical text, knowing that it's a little wrong, and then reconnecting to the rabbinic one and saying, it's the rabbinic one to which I'm fully committed. It's, it's a weak, it's a limb, and I have to tell you, I could live on that limb. I've lived on much smaller. I've built huge ideologies on the smallest little hair, and so have the rabbis throughout our tradition. Very often they say, all of, all of the laws of, cha, of, of, of the Sabbath are like mountains hanging on a little, little hair of thou shall not work. You know, like, and from this you get what we did. You know what I mean? So they know that it's like, there. you know, if you give me a little something, I could weave it in. I could make a career out of this, but I know that in a debate for the consciousness of my people, this is not a strong limb. And the peace of justice is not a strong dimension of our dreams and aspirations for peace. I know that. And I have another example. And it says the same thing again. In Genesis, God, Abraham went up from Negev with his wife and all, and, and together with Lot. Abraham was very rich, and so was Lot, and they started to have some arguments. Lot, on verse 5, who went with Abraham also had flocks and herds, so, that, so the land could not support them staying together, for the possessions were so great that they could not remain together. And there was a quarrel with them, because you had too much stuff, and possessions make, instead of making people feel dayenu, it means it's just never enough. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Abram said to Lot in verse 8, Ach, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and yours. We're kinsmen. Is not the whole, is not the whole land before you? Pick. You go north, I'll go south. You go south, I'll go north. Abraham says, God promised me the land. I could share it with you. I don't need the whole land. I don't need it. I don't need to rule you. You go take, I'll go somewhere else. And I'll even let you pick. Because not living in strife is a greater value. And I could give a great sermon on this, about the centrality of peace and compromise of the land of Israel, as long as you don't read the end of the chapter. So they separated and everything went well and Abraham then, and Abraham remained in the land of Canaan. And then on verse 14, and the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, raise your eyes and look out from where you are to the north and to the south. Sounds familiar? To the east and to the west. For I give all the land that you see to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Then your offspring too cannot be counted. Up, walk about them through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. You did this great gesture of peace? <laughs> Fine, just let me recognize. Knock yourself out. I realize you don't want to fight with Lot, but don't think you're redrawing my plan for history. North, south, you remember you gave them the choice? Well, guess what? North and south, they're yours. Peace of justice exists in half of, the few of a few chapters. And that's it. 
You can't find it otherwise. Unless you go to utopian peace. In utopian peace, you have peace of justice. But that is when the whole condition of either nature or of human political life is transformed. There is a fourth piece, and with that I want to conclude. In Zechariah 8, 1 through 9. The word of the Lord hosts came to me. Thus said the Lord of hosts, I am very jealous for Zion. I am fiercely jealous for her. Thus said the Lord, I have returned to Z I, God, have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of faithfulness and the mount of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now it's not that lions are going to sit down and live with lambs, and it's not that swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. Thus said the Lord of hosts, there shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. Ah, you might think it seems impossible. This is something that won't happen. Shall it also be impossible for me, God says, declares the Lord. I will rescue my people from the lands of the east and from the lands of the west, and I'll bring them home to dwell in Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and sincerity. Zechariah has happened in our lifetime. Lions aren't lying down with lambs. And swords haven't been transformed into plowshares. But we've come home. We've come home. And even though you think it's impossible, we've come home. And what might be possible is that we could get old. What might be possible is that we could have a reality of peace in which the children could play in the streets. Dayenu. Our kids could go hitchhiking. Wouldn't that, like, our kids could go hitchhiking. Dayenu. Is that so far? One of the issues, and with this I'll conclude, and if there's any questions or comments, questions actually. We are a people who've paid for peace. I don't know if more than any other people in the world, but at least as often as anybody else in the world. I usually don't like the more than, because while they sound like they're an empirical statement, they never are verifiable. So I don't need the more than. I know that I live in the midst of a people who truly yearn for peace. I know that I'm a part of a tradition for whom peace is a central part of its language. It's who we are. We talk about peace. We pray about it all the time. But one of the serious questions that we have to ask ourselves, and we have to ask our people here and our people overseas, is what peace are you praying for? Now, if I was talking politics, I would now speak about, so what is my notion of Islam, and where are the Palestinians, and what's their notion, etc. But since we're not talking politics, and we're not talking about what's possible or not, that's not our issue. We have to talk about what do we want. 
Have we allowed utopianism to depress us? Have we allowed a utopianism to make us despair? A Jewish people could never despair. Even if what we yearn for will not happen in our lifetime. You don't despair. You don't stop yearning for and thinking about what are your values and what you can do. And it could very well be that you might not be able to do that now, tomorrow, and maybe never. But do you have a language which by definition shackles you to a notion of a value which is so unimplementable that in essence it really stops being a value? Do you have a notion of peace which is fully integrated into a concept of nationalism and chosenness in which the peace you really, really yearn for is peace and quiet and you dominating everybody else? Is that the peace that you're praying for? There are Jews who are praying for utopian peace. And there are Jews who are paying, praying for imperial peace. Now one of the tragedies of the Bible is that we don't have a long and extensive tradition of a peace of justice. We don't. And in the language of this conference in which I'm not talking about them and I just want to know what do I need to do? Who do I want to be? Who do I as a rabbi, what do I want to teach when I get up and I say, what am I here for? How do I walk in God's ways? How do I present ideas and values that, that are who we ought to be? We have to ask ourselves, how do we create a language in which peace of justice is an integral part of our, of our religious world? even though in our tradition it is almost completely absent. Now, do we have a notion of peace of justice which is only utopian? Do we maybe not even think of peace of justice? Do we have a real peace in which what all I want for is I want to grow old. And I want my grandchildren to grow old. And I want to be at their wedding. And I'm planning on it. I'm actually thinking about it. I'd like to see who my granddaughter is going to marry. I feel like the idea is like, I like it. I'd like to dance at her wedding. I'd like a bracha. Now, if that's what I'm yearning for, what do I need to do? Let's start this retreat not talking about them, not talking about what's possible, Let's talk about what we want. Let's recognize that even what we want within our tradition is not so simple. And that in many ways, we have a, a lot of work to do to ensure that one notion of peace wins over the other. And that while I have no problem condemning imperial peace, and choosing the peace of justice over the peace of over imperial peace. How do we make sure that these notions of, of peace of justice and of real peace
don't get sent into the graveyard of our prayers, but rather remain living values that we play with, that we think about, that we struggle with, that we are frustrated with, that we get depressed sometimes because we yearn for them, but they're real. There's something that we could do about them, and we feel obligated to, at the very least, try. Thank you.